Welcome to Scavengers Horde, where a Stars podcast often thoughts on whatever takes our fancy, be it the latest show on Disney Plus or a weird Legends novelization you may have forgotten existed. If you're new here, let me introduce myself. I'm Rachel, and I'm Kirsty. This is episode 193, and it's 19th of March, 2023. So yeah, how have you been, Kirsty? Good. Yeah. Nice. Enjoying recent Mando episodes. Same. Yeah, really enjoying the Star Wars we're getting at the moment. I am aware, actually, that we haven't been keeping up with Bad Batch at all. And I'm not saying we have to, but there are a few choice episodes that I've been told are really good. So I'm hoping to stick to my kind of promise to myself at some point and catch up with a bit of Bad Batch. So if I do, I will update people. I've been keeping up through other reaction episodes (laughs) (laughs) so i'm hearing about it secondhand which is fine by me at the moment but yeah i'll probably watch it at some point i'm just not really in a rush yeah exactly i feel like there's an episode with um like the empire and like palpatine and stuff Mm. um that got people very fired up um but yeah i always feel like it's episodes that don't have actually to do with the main characters that get people most excited which i always find a bit of a shame like i understand why it happens you know it's like it's palpatine he's a big presence in this series um but yeah i'm hoping that the bad batch themselves actually shine as well in some of these episodes people are gushing about it sounds like there is some interesting stuff going on with like tech have you heard about the stuff with him um i haven't no um do should i just be kept in suspense or do you want to hint to what we well again i haven't watched it myself but i just heard hints that like there was a potential like romance oh, or okay and it's some, just some interesting character moments i don't know how true that is maybe people are just shipping yeah the bad batch are interesting aren't they because they're kind of like a audience insert into like that weird in between period like the transition between like clone wars stuff and then empire when suddenly they're wanted men and they're not like the other clones yes um so yeah i i think part of the drive of the show is like witnessing that change through their eyes yeah and like how different the galaxy suddenly feels exactly this is like a tipping point isn't it so i do understand the raison d'etre for the show (laughs) so to speak um i do think there's a good case to tell a story in that time period with these kinds of characters um so yeah I, i think i will go back and maybe not watch the whole thing but yeah just choice episodes that hopefully have the most integral story beats fully accepting that i'll be missing out on some important stuff if i watch it that way but oh well our time is finite we need to (laughs) make tough choices exactly um but yeah on the subject of time um we now have the full schedule information for my panel at star wars celebration and obviously it won't just be me it will also be with marie claire from what the force and laurie who's a screenwriter and director which is very cool Um, And yeah, our panel is called Powerful Light, Powerful Darkness, How the Sequels Expand the Mythology of Star Wars, but you knew that already. The new information is that the panel is going to be on Saturday 8th of April, and it's going to be from 1.30 till 2.30pm on the fan stage. So yeah, if you listen to this podcast and you're also going to be at Star Wars Celebration on that day, the Saturday, we would absolutely love to see you there. And yeah, please come and support the panel. I'm sure it'll be packed. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. 
um yeah I am very excited about it and yeah we're gonna have a rehearsal or two probably two if I can get my way <laughs> because I like to be uber prepared um but yeah it's fun it's coming together really nicely and yeah just love all that deep mythological goodness because there's so much to say about the sequel trilogy and as people who listen to this podcast hopefully know that's a subject Kirsty and I have had a lot of words to say about in the past so yeah it's good to use those muscles again have you been re-watching the movies no but I'm about to start Ooh. so yeah I'll flag for you when I'm doing it specifically so you can join in across the vast expanse of distance that separates us Kirsty if you so I wish. do want to yeah it's yeah. been a while yeah no same like especially um force awakens i feel like it's been quite a while since i saw that i think that's the one i saw most recently actually and then i just never really carried on with the marathon okay yeah so you can pick up from the last Last jedi Jedi, potentially yeah yeah which is a great place to pick up but yeah no so very excited for the celebration panel i think we'll be recording at least one more episode hopefully um before celebration so you'll be in for another reminder at least so yeah, no, it's great. Hope to see a bunch of people there who listen to the podcast at Celebration. So yeah, and if you're not able to come, we're hoping to have a recording up afterwards. But nothing will be the same as being there live in the room. <laughs> so yeah, please. Way to rub it in. <laughs> yes, sorry. Yeah, sorry for the inferior experience you're about to have. No, it will still be good. <laughs> for now, let's move on and just quickly chat about what we've been watching slash reading in the last few weeks. So yeah, what's your first pick? Kirsten? Yeah, I honestly, I have not been watching much stuff lately or even reading much. I, I'm not sleeping very well, so I'm Aww. like getting super tired after work <laughs> and just not really getting to all the things that I want to enjoy. But, you know, that's life. Um, but one thing I did watch that I really enjoyed was a film called Witness for the Prosecution. And it's actually based on an old Agatha Christie play, which I didn't know about at first um this was actually a suggestion from my husband uh we watched it together and really enjoyed it lots of fun twists and turns some of them you see coming and then some of them you really don't so there's a nice mix of things where you know they feel like there's a lot of like foreshadowing and and hints to the audience and then other things where it's like what that Um, sounds really fun yeah so it's a legal mystery thriller and I've never seen something that, you know, takes place mostly within a courtroom be so engaging and riveting. Wow, that's high praise. What, what year is this movie from? 1957. Oh, okay, nice. That's really and cool. And guess who it, it stars? So well. Oh, oh, oh. Um, male or female? Male. Male. Oh, um, Jimmy Stewart. No, it's Charles Lawton. Oh, Charles Lawton. Sorry, Lawton. guys. <laughs> Sorry, I should have guessed you were driving it like a theme that's been going on for the podcast. I'm sorry. I didn't even mean to walk into this one, but I was like, oh, it's him. I'll watch. <laughs> and it's Agatha Christie. Nice. Um, the number one Charles Lawton stan. I think he's actually third build, but he's the um, the lawyer. So okay. he's like defending the guy who's accused of murder. And it also stars Tyrone Power, who I knew from the old Nightmare Alley. And he was really great in that. And um, Marlene Dietrich, which I don't, I don't think I've seen her in anything before, actually. Wow, and she's so iconic. Like she's yeah. someone I feel like if you've never seen one of her performances, you still know who she is because she's yes, just exactly. such a name. I might have seen. I, I'll have to check, but I, I just didn't think that I had, and now I'm like, oh, I really need to watch more of her stuff. It was just really, really entertaining, and Charles Lawton puts in another amazing performance. He's just got this 
amazing talent for bringing so many little character quirks in that feel like really natural but also very funny amazing really talented guy lots of lots of presence so um yes i've seen a bunch of really good movies um it was really hard to just cut it down to what i have to be honest because yeah i feel lucky so for like the first few months of the year they haven't been the greatest in terms of quality so i've made up for it in the last two weeks um but yeah the first film i'd like to talk about is called joyland um and this film is the kind of one where you're a bit sickened when you look up the director because i looked up the director his name's siam sadiq um, he's a Pakistani screenwriter and director, and he's younger than me. <laughs> and it's like, how dare you be so talented and accomplished and younger than me? Ah! Sorry, I sound so bitter and jealous, but I'm, I'm not really. It's just. It's just impressive, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's super impressive. Um, so it's such an accomplished, well done movie. Um, basically, it's about a young man who's from like quite a strict, traditional Pakistani family. He's married, but it's clearly quite a loveless marriage, you know, and his wife's like a, a nice, kind person, but he just feels nothing for her. Um, and he's just sort of slumping around through life, you know, not really achieving anything in particular. But then he gets a job at this like club, essentially, as a dancer to a trans actress um, and performer. And he falls in love with her, essentially. And you can imagine there's this massive clash between his family's values and, you know, this love affair that he's having with this um, trans woman. Um, and that makes it sound kind of like cliche and predictable, um, but it's really not. And it's a story with multiple points of view. So you're not just looking at his point of view, you're also looking at the trans actress's point of view, you're looking at the wife's point of view. And yeah, it has a lot of empathy for each of the characters, even when they're doing things that might under other circumstances be like objectionable or like bad in some way. Uh, I'm skirting around what actually happens. Obviously, I don't want to spoil anything that goes on in the story. But it's just a really, really well told, um, empathetic film. And yeah, I, I just strongly recommend it. It's so beautifully filmed. It's got really great acting and it's just a really, really powerful story. So yeah, I recommend checking that out. It's in cinemas in the UK at the moment. I have no idea how you'd watch it in America, but just look it up, Joyland. I will. That sounds really brilliant. Yeah. No, so it's fantastic. So the next film I'm going to talk about is called Pearl, and that's the horror film starring Mia Goff, um, and it's directed by Ty West. Um, it's a prequel to the horror film X that came out last year. Like, how do you feel about horror films, Kirsty? I've kind of forgotten. Um, I've I've gotten really into them recently, and I, for a long time, honestly, I had my favourites, like Rosemary's Baby is one of my favorite films of all time yes but i've always been a bit of a wuss too so when i'm going into the unknown it's a bit like oh i can't do it <laughs> it's too much um and i'd heard mixed things about x I, i'm sure you're going to go into this but like pearl seems to be the one that's better received yeah i'd say they're very different movies so x it's like a really like seedy slasher horror film essentially where it's a group of young people they go to like a creepy farmhouse to film an x-rated movie thus the title and they get picked off one by one under mysterious circumstances that become clear as the plot develops you know so there are interesting and original touches to that movie but 
overall it's a very standard horror template um mm-hmm. and i found peril much more interesting i mean i liked text to be clear i didn't think it was bad i just thought it was relatively you know just what you'd expect from a horror movie whereas pearl it's really combining genres because it's like half horror half classic hollywood melodrama Mm. um so it's set in 1919 around the time the spanish flu which is a really interesting setting because off the top of my head i can't think of many films that are set in that time period of the spanish flu and the heroine pearl she's a character who appears as an old woman in x essentially so that's the continuity line between the films um and in this one she's like just a bored struggling young woman who's stuck at home with her parents on this isolated farm and her mother in particular is um terrified of the pandemic you know she doesn't want her daughter to go out and catch anything um but obviously the daughter does go out you know and there's all this great tapping into like covid fears you know and wearing Mm. masks and stuff so there's a lot in the film to say about you know the current pandemic that we're going through um and yeah it's just a really fascinating blend of tones and styles um and i think really the reason the film is so great is because of mia goth because she's just so wonderful in that lead part she makes it so completely believable even as she's been completely theatrical and over the top of her performance mm. so this is not a naturalistic performance i think she cited judy garland in wizard of oz <laughs> as an influence on her performance you can totally see that in the film it really comes across um and yeah she's just wonderful in it she's like so deliciously over the top but there's still like a real core to the character you know so you do find yourself feeling like a weird sort of empathy for her even when she's doing some really messed up horrific things (laughs) um so yeah just a really fascinating blend of tones it's not doesn't completely work i don't think but i still find it really really good and absolutely worth watching so do you think you can watch that without watching x I absolutely think you could, yeah. Okay. In a way, it would mean you go into it fresher in certain respects because having watched X before you see this means you kind of understand certain plot points more clearly. And in a way, it might be better if you go into Pearl and you're not sure what's the truth and what might be inside her head and stuff. You right. know, so it would create more ambiguity. Um, yeah, and it might end up being better to watch them all chronologically anyway. So if you really like Pearl, then you could be like, okay, let's watch X now. But yeah, just watch Pearl. I remember being really impressed by Mia Goth in Emma. Yeah, I mean the character she's playing is great, so like she has material to work with. But she made such an impression on me in there. Yeah, no, Mia Goth is really, really wonderful actress. She's just like the perfect oddball, <laughs> and I mean that in like the best way. To be clear, yeah. you know, like the perfect cinematic oddball. And have you seen she's set to be in a version of Frankenstein with yes. Oscar Isaac? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. perfect casting in my opinion i think this can be great <laughs> want to see her as the bride of frankenstein i know that's probably not who she's playing she's probably going to be the wife but um yeah that'd be the dream i think she'd be great in that role even as well you know yeah yeah well they could do like an x and pearl thing where she comes back and plays the bride of frankenstein the sequel <laughs> screw the logic of the first film <laughs> um okay lovely um yeah so what's your next pick Kirsty? it's the aviator's wife um which is part of a series by the French director, Eric Roma. He did a collection of films. He, well, they called them the Comedies and Proverbs. Um, so it was like a, a certain era in his career that um, 
was a huge influence on Richard Linklater's Before Trilogy. So you think of like the typical French Parisian films of young lovers talking to each other and not particularly plot driven, but really arresting performances and beautifully shot and lots of kind of a, you know, that classic contradictory mix of like self-interest and huge passion and connection and kind of like talking past each other and yeah just really beautifully done and i plan to watch the rest of the series as well nice is it like a series in the sense that it's got the same characters running no, through it or just I think like thematically some overlap, some overlap with the actors but they're they're playing different characters it's just kind of like a, a an era in this director's career you know? right yeah no that makes complete sense I saw a really good um, French film recently as well called A Story of Women um, with Isabelle Huppert, who's like... Oh, yeah, there's a collection of her stuff on Criterion right now. I haven't seen any of her stuff. Yeah, that might be one of the films um, that's on there. So I think she won Best Actress at Cannes for it. It came out in the 80s, um, so it's quite old. But it's a really good film based on a true story about... um, a woman who did abortions in France during the German occupation. Um, and yeah, th- there's lots of like moral complexity and interesting questions being asked and stuff. And it's a great performance. So yeah, if you're intrigued by her, it's an interesting one to watch. Um, I like how you're managing to squeeze in a few more recommendations. Yeah, I'm sorry. Because <laughs> you just watched so much great stuff recently. I've seen too many good films. <laughs> Speaking of France. Speaking of France, <laughs> I've also seen a French film. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's really bad. I was just completely... No, no, um, it's great. The more recommendations, the better. Yeah, I was just hijacking you, Kirsty. <laughs> deserve to be called out. <laughs> um, yeah, so the next film I'd like to recommend is um, hopefully one that's more accessible to people. So now there's a tendency to recommend films that are like quite obscure or art house, whereas this one's more mainstream, I guess. Uh, this one is Sharper which is on Apple TV. Have you heard of this one, Kirsty? No. Okay. I need to get my Apple back because Ted Lasso's back. Yeah. No, I <laughs> Sorry, think you'd like it. That's very basic of me. But... No, no, that's completely reasonable. Um, I'm just bringing up the cast again. So clearly no, to I be haven't more heard prepared. of this one. Okay. Maybe when you name some of the cast, it'll seem familiar. It'll still, yeah. Um, see, a sharper is basically like a neo-noir. It's a neo-noir. Um, and I was just drawn to it because of the fact it was like a noirish film, you know, and you almost never get noir style films anymore. And to be fair, I think neo-noir, it's sort of like a amorphous category because I think proper noir, it needs to be black and white, right? You know, it needs all the dark shadows and like the expressionistic flavor and stuff you just can't get that with like modern color filming but i do think it's different yeah yeah it's different and you need to accept that but i think if you can get over that like visual hurdle i think this is definitely a noir it's basically a very twisty story about a bunch of con artists manipulating victims and each other and it's kind of impossible to talk about because of that because I kind of don't want to give away exactly who's conning who and what the relationships between the characters are because the whole point of the film is that you discover that for yourself okay. and that's a big part of the fun. Who's uh, in it? Uh, it's got Julianne Moore, um, who's Ooh. an important character, Sebastian Stan, who's also really good, um, Brianna Middleton and Justice Smith play a young couple in it and they're both great and they have fantastic chemistry together. Um, so yeah, they are probably my favorite characters in the movie though everyone else is still really fun um and he has also got john lithgow 
Um, so yeah, oh, okay. it's a good cast, you know, some quite big names in there. Um, and yeah, it's just a really fun time. You know, it's not like an Oscar type movie or like a really profound movie or anything, but I just had a lot of fun, you know, and it was nice to see this sort of like mid-budget film where it's not like an art house indie, but it's also not a big blockbuster with CGI and stuff. It's just a good story with good performances and good characters with lots of fun twists and turns, you know, it was the kind of genre you don't get anymore. So yeah, when you get your Apple TV back for Ted Lasso, you should watch this, Kirsty. So yeah, like I will. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then what's your next one, Kirsty? Well, I'm cheating here because as I said, um, I haven't been able to read that much recently and I've been trying to keep up with my war and peace, you know, so that means that I don't have as much time for everything else. So I'm currently reading a book called The Memory Police, but I'm really enjoying it, so I felt like I should mention it. Um, it came out... It it was published in 1994 in Japan, but it was recently translated into English, I think just a few years ago, and has been hugely successful. So, um, And it's kind of got that Orwell 1984, like dystopian sci-fi feeling to it, but it's got... It's very, like, mysterious, and you don't quite understand what's going on at first um but as the title suggests it's about memory and how on this island that it's set on where all the characters live things will suddenly go missing and with when they go missing most of the characters lose their memories of the thing too so the main character her father was an ornithologist and she goes over what it felt like to lose birds Oh, wow. Birds suddenly disappeared and then all their memories of birds disappeared. And it's about how the world around you, you informs your identity and when these concepts and words disappear, a part of you disappears too. And I don't really know fully where it's going, but I'm, I'm really into it. So That sounds fascinating. That. I've literally just yeah. sent it's Beautifully a, written. I've literally just sent a sample to my Kindle because I do oh, that when someone mentions... A f- a book and it sounds really compelling um because yeah i've read a japanese novel myself recently and i was like oh this is really good and is it is not you know obviously japanese authors i'm sure there's great ones i'm sure there's mediocre ones i'm sure there's bad ones but it's just something nice about reading books from a completely from a culture that's different from your own mm-hmm. and yeah getting that different perspective on concepts that you might have seen explored in a different way you know by western authors um so yeah like i'm always open to reading more literature and translation so yeah this looks really great so thank you for bringing it up of course i'll let you know what i think about it when i finished (laughs) i've heard that the ending can be pretty devastating so i'm I'm interested to see where it goes if if i go onto your goodreads and i see it's like one star (laughs) then i'll know i don't necessarily mean in a bad way (laughs) (laughs) no no of course yeah I feel like things would have to go pretty disastrously wrong after that sort of feeling about it at this point. So, yeah, yeah. I'm sure and strong. So then the next film I'd like to recommend is one I just saw t- today, which I thought was really lovely and charming. And that's a rom-com called Rye Lane. Um, and it's by a first-time director called Rain Allen Miller. And it's basically about two young people in their 20s and they meet, they kind of like have a meet cute in an art gallery and they realise that they've both just broken up with their partners 
and they kind of get involved with like wacky schemes to sort of like get back on their partners in different ways their former partners and through the process they sort of like bond and get closer together um that probably makes it sound like really silly and trite and is the sort of story that easily could be but it's done in like a really charming clever way and there's lots of really nice inventive flourishes to the direction you know that make it really fun and engaging to watch and like a lot of it is just being with this couple as they get to know each other you know in terms and it feels a lot like a before sunrise vibe in that way you know it's not quite as like art house and contemplative as before sunrise um but it has that similar yeah just sensibility to it you know in terms of you're just spending time with these people and getting to know them and experiencing them together as they fall in love essentially and it was just really sweet really charming and it has a perfectly lovely romantic ending um and it's also all set in south london specifically peckham um and i don't know peckham well but i do know other parts of south london really well and it was really nice to see south london on screen so i feel like all the attention goes to north london and i'm sorry no one who doesn't live in london will care but north london gets way too much coverage guys <laughs> south london's where it's all about is the much better part of the city i don't care what any of you north londoners have to say about it it's all about south london um so yeah it was really nice to see um areas i know on screen you know and treated of such like love and affection by the camera so yeah very sweet and i recommend it i really want to see this one i wasn't aware of it until i read this really (laughs) silly article in the guardian i don't know if you saw it it was like expressing worry that this film would like gentrify peckham yes i've seen it yeah because because (laughs) they were like oh well remember what happened to notting hill (laughs) i was like okay yeah uh, <laughs> i don't know i feel like it's a very very dumb argument i i feel like it's inevitable that peckham like every single area of london will be gentrified well yeah and it's not going to be the movie's fault no is it? it's not going to be right. down to the bloody movie it's just it's going to happen because people are gradually being forced to live further and further out of london because prices become more expensive yeah. depending I, on i felt proximity. like they wanted to stitch two things together i totally get the concern over you know areas being gentrified but like to conflate that with a movie being released about it that celebrates the area and the people who live there is yeah kind of exactly it's a bizarre complaint especially because i think most of like a lot of the people involved you know like the like behind the scenes and that some of the actors and stuff are literally from south london you right. know they're from the so area they're right to do that <laughs> yeah exactly they can tell whatever stories they like about where they're from so yeah very weird <laughs> Um, yeah it's very charming and it's in uk cinemas now i don't know what type of release it's going to get in america it feels so so uk specific that i'm not sure i think how it, it would i have read. a feeling it might end up on hulu okay that um, would make sense yeah so it's a shame yeah. it's a lovely film to see in the cinema but i i feel like it would be a harder sell to american audiences i don't know everyone loves a rom-com this is true and i i personally thought it was perfectly sweet and charming but yeah th- there's just so many like um like in references i guess like oh yeah peck and plex peck and plex i know peck and plex (laughs) i saw daisy ridley's ophelia at peck and plex okay yeah and then just finally just because i don't know if anyone really cares to hear my opinion on 65 the adam driver dinosaur movie but i have seen it so i did briefly want to acknowledge that i'd seen it and i had an opinion on it because of course i do um i didn't love it it's nice to see Adam Driver in any film. I'm not very discerning. If he's in a movie, I will go and watch it. 
Um, but I just think as a movie, it's not great. It's very like choppily put together and just like badly edited. And yeah, you can just tell there was massive interference, and that whatever that script might have looked that whatever that script might have looked like when they were filming. I think the final product on screen bore very little resemblance to what that script probably was. And yeah, it's just a bit of a shame. So there's lots of resources and talent that went into the movie and I just don't feel like any of it was worth it. So yeah, sorry to be a bummer. (laughs) Oh, I haven't watched it yet. I do plan to and it looks like it might be fun, you know, but I'm interested because I'd heard that like they'd pushed it back. Mm -hmm. So there was the sense of it being troubled production. But like, do you have... Now you've seen it, do you you actually see the seams and like what the film might have been instead? Yeah, it's more the question of seeing where things are missing and seeing huh. things that look disconnected from the rest of the film. It's like there's an opening scene, for example, like on a beach with Adam Driver's character and his family. And I do not believe that was the scene that was originally meant to introduce that character in the movie. I just cannot believe it. I'm almost certain it was a reshoot. I might be wrong. I obviously don't have evidence of that. It's just the vibes I got. Um, Because honestly, this isn't a spoiler. It's one of the first things you find out when you watch the movie. But it's revealed at the beginning of the film that Adam Driver's character is not a human. He's an alien. He's an extraterrestrial. Oh, he looks completely human. <laughs> Didn't see that coming. <laughs> His wife and child look completely human. They all talk English with American accents, but they are aliens. They're from an alien planet, and they just happen to stumble across Earth on this spaceship. You know, it's just all random. It's all coincidence, um, and that in itself is just shitty world building. <laughs> in my opinion because it just raises a million questions but does it add anything to like does does he like behave in certain ways that you're like oh that's not how a human from no not at all really no he's just like regular spaceman human adam driver you know the same regular adam driver (laughs) that's funny he's not remotely alien and I don't know I feel like the original plan maybe was something like there was like a wormhole and he traveled back in time back to the oh, that's period. the vibe i got from the trailer yeah maybe no exactly and maybe yeah. that's just completely off course but i feel like that would have been a more interesting and reasonable plot than what it is now where he's just an alien and don't think about it that's what the film is basically telling you to do is <laughs> saying shut down your brain don't question this just accept it well it, yeah, yeah i mean it does seem like the kind of film that has that vibe in general <laughs> just enjoy it be along for the ride it's stupid yeah exactly and there's nothing wrong with that okay and like there are pleasures to be had adam looks hot in it okay and and that's important that's a valid reason to go and see this film um and he's also been like a cute protective father figure to this little girl which is like yeah that's enough for me yeah exactly what more do you want right so i'm just being a fussy bitch just so ignore me no i mean you're allowed to have an opinion (laughs) yeah yeah no but I, i don't know i just i always feel mean so i don't like to be negative really about anything but i think especially when it's something that's already been completely savaged by critics right it's this thing of proper drubbing you know oh i saw some positive things okay yeah yeah. well that's good i saw a guy who writes for the hollywood reporter saying it was fun okay no well that's good then like yeah maybe i do have more license to be mean about it than i thought i did um but yeah no there's pleasures to be had so i'm not saying don't go and watch it i'm just saying go in and 
take it for what it is and just have it f- treat it as this plain and simple popcorn flick and then i mean we all one. have our films that we've watched for adam that have not turned out to be our favorites exactly right? exactly so. this is probably mine but that's okay i accept that yeah let's just say i'm looking forward to megalopolis so i think even though that's going to be a trash fire i feel like it's going to be a very interesting trash fire and yeah i'm just not convinced 65 was particularly interesting i'm sorry fair enough yeah yeah okay and now i'm gonna stop so i don't like being negative and that also means we can move on to star wars stuff so that's very (laughs) exciting um so yeah could you start off kirsty um let me rewind um, so right, let's begin by talking about Star Celebration because they've revealed the panel schedule. I think they've released pretty much all the panels now, um, but obviously we're not going to talk about all of them here. We're just going to talk about a few of the biggest ones. Um, and yeah, could you just briefly introduce the Lucasfilm Studio Showcase, Kirsty? Um, you don't need to say like which stage is that specifically, but just read the little write-up saying what's going to happen. Okay. Uh, Star Wars Celebration returns, launching of a must-see showcase that will kick the weekend's festivities into hyperdrive. Lucasfilm's current crop of live-action filmmakers will be joined by special guests to discuss the many current and upcoming Star Wars adventures, including The Mandalorian, Andor, and more. Yeah, so I think this... If we get a new movie, if they do really want to be brave, if they want to be like, right, we're really going to commit to this now... Then they bring out Damon Lindelof and they bring out the director and hopefully they bring out cast for this new movie. That's my dream. Well, don't forget they might also have Acolyte stuff. That might take oh, yeah, a yeah. decent chunk. For sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd be disappointed if there wasn't any Acolyte stuff. But I guess in terms of stuff that hasn't been officially 100% announced, that's the thing I want the most. I want the movie. I'm, I'm like, um, oh God, what's his name? The um, director um, from... The Mandalorian, the old guy who Ty- who also directs oh, films. Werner Herzog, Werner I want Herzog, to see the baby. Yes. I want to see the movie. Yeah, exactly. It's like <laughs> I'm like Werner Herzog from the Mandalorian, being like, "I want the movie." <laughs> <laughs> I just want a new Star Wars movie. That's all I want. Okay, um, I just hope you're not disappointed if they don't. I know. Because I think there's yeah. probably enough like TV stuff announced that they could just focus on that stuff i agree with you and like let don't get me wrong i'm not going to like come out there like a sobbing mess if they don't announce <laughs> like a new movie you know i'm not that emotionally attached to getting a new star wars movie you know i do really want one but it's not like my life depends on it um but yeah i, I just really hope that happens and that's the thing i most want to see um i'd say after that like you say i'm probably most excited to see, to see stuff from acolyte and i'd really love to see some really early footage because they've been filming for quite a few months now so I feel like they might have some sort of sizzle just to show the people in the room. And that would be so cool. So, yeah. And obviously all this is predicated on me getting in the room, right? Which we know is not a guarantee at celebration. Or one of like the overflow stages. Yeah, exactly. My advantage this time around is that I have a Friday pass, which I bought last summer. And I also have my four-day speaker badge. So that equals oh, two Oh, can you entries. enter on both of them? I can enter on both. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, we'll see. If I fail on one of them, hopefully I'll get in on the other one. So yeah, that'll be the dream. Um, but yeah, hopefully if I get in on both, I, I have no idea what to do with myself. Well, I guess I have to <laughs> give away the winning entry to someone. Yeah, are you able to transfer it to someone else? I'd hope so. Otherwise it feels like a bit of a waste, doesn't it? Um, so yeah. I think I remember people doing that when we were in Chicago. Okay. So. 
yeah, I, I know that we were able to sneak into a few panels because of the goodwill of other people. I'm not sure if it was quite that official, though, or if it was just like, stick with me. And then we just like walked <laughs> close behind them and got into things. Um, Anything goes. Yeah. It's madness. Exactly. Just the sheer daring of it is completely unfathomable. Um, but yeah, no. So what would you say you're particularly looking out for from this panel, Kirsty? I guess you're probably a bit like, anything goes. But yeah, what do you most um, want to Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely interested to hear more about where Andor's going. Yes, for sure. Um, yeah, and I expect them to be showing some Acolyte stuff. Um, maybe some of the skeleton crew? Yeah. I don't know. So I think that's due to be coming out this awesome. So I feel like it's the time, you know, to start hyping people for it and being like, this is coming, get excited. So, yeah, I'm sure there would be stuff for that. And if you think about it, that's a lot to cover, really, isn't it? Because yeah. you've got Mandalorian, Andor, Ahsoka, Skeleton Crew, the Acolytes, probably other well, I think things. Ahsoka might have its own panel elsewhere. Ahsoka does. I think what I remember them doing in the past though is that even if they have a separate panel for like a big upcoming project there'd still be like a little piece about it you know so hopefully not like a really extended period because it's like a waste of time when they have their own separate panel um but yeah just like a little acknowledgement that yes this is a thing that's part of our upcoming production line okay yes yes it is it's very good um, yeah, and then a less flashy panel, but one I'm still excited for is in the afternoon, and that's the making of Andor season one. And executive producers Tony Gilroy and Diego Luna and their team of creatives recount the making of the epic first season of Star Wars Andor. And me and my friend Rebecca are totally prioritizing this one. We really, really want to get in um, because yeah, we love Andor, and yeah, just think it'll be really fascinating to get that behind the scenes look. So. Yeah, really want to go to that one. Yeah, this is one I'll try to watch as well. From afar, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> now, I really do hope they stream everything on the celebration stage on YouTube. I'm sure they will because, yeah, otherwise it's not fair to people like you who just cannot make the trip because it's a crazy thing to ask, you know, people from all over the world to go to one city. I say that like <laughs> I haven't done that. I have. Um, I can imagine this panel might inspire me to be like, yeah, I'm going to rewatch Andor. <laughs> oh, yeah. Get me, get me in the mood. No, exactly. I'm really hoping for some like cool before and after shots because I'm quite nerdy about the behind the scenes of like film and TV production. I really love to see, you know, what a shot looked like without anything done to it, you know, just as it was on the day it was filmed and then seeing the layers of post-production that happened to make it into what we see as the end product. So I think that'd be really cool. So exciting mm. um and yeah then could you just read out about the sunday panels kirsty yes oh this one looks great um villains of the sequel trilogy do, do, the dark do. side of the force <laughs> <laughs> the, the dark side of the force is a pathway to many panels some consider to be can't miss <laughs> join host amy ratcliffe as she sits down with ian mcdermott Andy Serkis and Gwendolyn Christie as they discuss their villainous roles in the final chapters of the Skywalker saga. Now, where is Donal? Yes, it's so sad. And Adam Driver, why can't well, he be there? You know, maybe come he's on. not a villain of the sequel trilogy. <laughs> no, this is true. He should be on the Heroes of the Sequel Trilogy panel. 
I think those three will be very entertaining together, though. Oh, same. Honestly, I'm so fascinated for this one. And yeah, this is another one I've got my fingers crossed for getting into it. Um, because, yeah, I just think it would be wonderful. Um, so I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't think I've seen any of these three people interact in any shape or form. So I really do hope there's like a bit of spontaneous conversation and banter going on because, yeah, just the vibes between like Ian and Andy, for example, you know, when like whatever the hell was happening in terms of the relationship between Palpatine and Snoke. I wonder if that's going to be acknowledged, you know, in terms of like... Yeah, because they're both aware. I know Andy wasn't involved with the Rise of Skywalker, but he's got to be aware of that, right? Yeah, no, he must be. (laughs) Yeah, because... As far as I understand... They'll probably make some jokes about it, at least. Uh, yeah, I'd hope so. so. As far as I understand it, Snoke is essentially a puppet for Palpatine. So he's... I mean, I'm, I've given up trying to understand it. That's probably the sanest <laughs> route to take, Kirstie. It's probably, yeah, a, a wise option. Uh, but yeah, I do still try to understand sometimes. Um, and yeah, he's basically like a puppet. So yeah, I, I would personally, if I were there on stage asking questions... I'd be what like, level of free will did he have? Yeah, I, I wouldn't even ask that. I'd ask, like, how does that feel, Andy Circus, as a performer, to know that the character you played, in retrospect, has been turned into an agent of a different character? You know, you obviously didn't know that when you were filming these films and playing that part. But if you had known that, would it have changed any aspect of your performance? That's the mm-hmm. sort of question I would have asked. Um, yeah. But maybe that will be asked. Who knows? Maybe I should suggest it to Amy, who's clearly my best friend on Twitter. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, it should be a really interesting conversation. Definitely. And I know Gwendolyn Christie's going to look amazing. So I've seen... like, and, Oh, she is so gorgeous. She's so gorgeous. Honestly, Kirsty. So I saw her at the... Um, they did a premiere at the BFI for The Sandman, the um, Netflix mm. series. And I literally just saw her across the crowd because she's so tall. She's literally head and shoulders above everyone else. So I could just see like her disembodied like head like floating through the crowd. <laughs> and yeah, she's just like really ethereal and spectacular. And also like a really funny, intelligent person. Obviously, I make yes, it sound yeah. like she's just of interest for like aesthetic value. But no, it's going to be a great combination of people. So I'm excited. Yeah, that sounds cool. Um, I'm glad to see like just panels focusing on the sequel trilogy. Oh, you know? same. Yeah, yeah. That was a really pleasant surprise, to be honest. So we've obviously got villains of the sequel trilogy. We've got Powerful Light, Powerful Darkness on the fan stage on Saturday from 1.30 till 2.30pm. Um, and that was clearly all part of design, right? You know, they mm. just told us to put that panel. No, they didn't. They didn't. It was. I guess I'm also curious to see, you know, if Andy's there for that day. And I know it's a different day from the Andor panel, but like, could he show up there too? Oh, I'd hope so. I feel like Andy Circus. I don't know because I'm not like a stalker, but I feel like a lot of actors in the UK, they live in London anyway. So hopefully it wouldn't be a huge ask for him to be there, like across the Yeah, time. as long as he's not currently filming something or busy otherwise. Yeah, exactly. He might be like, yeah, show me the money, I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> I also feel like he might be doing autographs and sign-ins. Um, I don't right. know though, so I, I don't, I'm not interested in that side of things, thank God. I think he is, I think I saw that. So it saves me a lot of money not being interested. Yeah, it's hugely expensive, isn't it? Exactly. Like, and I know it's really special for people to meet their heroes, you know, and get photos and stuff, but I, I'm just grateful I don't need that sort of thing, because, yeah, my purse would hurt. 
Um, yeah, then there's also another Andor panel that day um, behind the magic, the visual effects of Andor, live on the Twin Sun stage from 12 to 1 pm. And that's with ILM and some members of like, the special effects teams. Um, because I'm an Andor stan, I would also like to go to that. I'm not sure it would work timing wise, though, so it's immediately after the villains of the sequel trilogy one. So basically, I think what I'm trying to say is that if I don't get to go to the villains of the sequel trilogy panel, I'd probably try and go to the Behind the Magic visual effects of Andal panel. So yeah, mm. it's nice to have backup plans. Yeah, it seems like it's basically impossible to go to two things back to back because, you know, you have to like run across an entire convention centre. Exactly, and it's going to be um, huge. I, I don't know the O2 well, but I know it's massive and yeah, it's going to be stressful. <laughs> so yeah, I don't want to be like an exhausted panting mess, like just throwing open the doors of the twin sun stage be like i'm here <laughs> it's nice to have a backup though it is true it's true and i wouldn't actually do that i don't like to make a fuss <laughs> um, okay. you can start the panel now i've arrived <laughs> exactly the most important person in the room is here now <laughs> no um and yeah then the final one i wanted to draw attention to is on monday and that is star wars visions volume two one till two p.m live on the celebration stage um and yeah, that's again with Amy Ratcliffe and a bunch of representatives from the various studios making films for the second volume of Visions. And yeah, just super hyped for this and feeling there's a pretty good chance that if I get into this, I'll be able to see at least one episode of Visions Volume 2 early. And that would make me happy because I love Visions Volume 1. So yeah. That would be great if you could see one. In terms of like what they'll be able to share about it, I don't expect an awful lot of like specifics because they're very spoiler conscious it'll more be like oh it was so great to work for star yeah. wars blah blah exactly i can picture it right now it's like oh yes when i was a little child watching return of the jedi on vhs i dreamed about creating a story for these worlds sorry i sound like such a, <laughs> I sound like such a horrible cynic <laughs> um but, but yeah it's fine you know it's nice to hear people being passionate and excited to be involved with star wars right um yeah, you do kind of go to these things and want something a little bit more juicy, but I understand why people can't give that, so it's totally cool. As long as they can give me like an an early preview of something for a cool trailer or whatever, then I'll be content. So yeah, we will see. I, I keep on being prescriptive and being like, they need to show me this, this, and this, then I'll be happy. <laughs> Anything else, inadequate. <laughs> but I, I really won't be like that, you know, it's... I feel lucky to be going to the whole convention. You know, I didn't initially imagine I'd be going for more than the Friday. So it's really cool to have that opportunity. So thank you, Reed Pop. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, that's my Oscars speech. Um, it's an honour just to be nominated. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel so special. <laughs> um, okay, and then the other thing we want to talk about is it's kind of been announced in conjunction with a lot of celebration news because i think it's going to be discussed at you know the publishing panels they have at celebration um but there's some very exciting news about the authors working on return of the jedi from a certain point of view i feel like this book wasn't officially announced before now but i think it was inevitable it was coming out you know it shouldn't have been a surprise to anyone It'd be weird if they hadn't done it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They've done one for the other two movies. Yeah, I guess maybe if those other two books had flopped completely, but they clearly didn't. So I think they've been well received. Yeah, yeah I enjoyed right. them both. So. No, you're right. They're good. Um, but yeah, what is a surprise is some of the names in the author lineup. So would you like to single out who is particularly of interest to us here, Kirstine? Explain why. 
Mm-hmm. Noticing Ali Hazelwood and Thea Guanzon. And Hannah Witten as well, I think. She's a real even though I haven't read her stuff. Yes, and for the uninitiated, explain the significance of these names and why this marks a momentous moment in the history of relations between Lucasfilm and the wider Raylo <laughs> fandom. <laughs> well, they both wrote some of the most well-known fics in the Raylo fandom mm-hmm. and are now published with their adaptations of those fics or Thea will be soon. Yes. And Ali obviously had a huge bestseller with the love hypothesis and the, the other ones that she's written. So a hugely exciting surprise to see this. That was really cool. Yeah. I definitely got one of the biggest pops from Kirsty on WhatsApp about this news where I was able to tell them that, hey, these people are writing stories in the I just couldn't the believe Jedi it. Anthology. And Kirsty was like, what? Not in that tone, but surprised. Sorry, Kirsty, I'm Thea talking was, for you. I'm going to shut up. Thea was writing um, Raylo Fick from like 2015. Wow. Or very early 2016. It's like proper so, OG. Yeah. Yeah, I think Ali might have come in with TLJ. I'm not sure. But either way, this. I just like you speaking as 2015 Raylos, you know. It's just you never thought you'd see the day. <laughs> yeah. It, honestly, I would have laughed you out of the room, I think, if you'd said. Oh yeah, in seven years, Raylos will be writing stories in an official Lucasfilm anthology. And obviously it's not like these stories are going to be about Raylo. They're obviously not, because Ray and Ben did not exist at this point in the timeline. Um, but yeah, it's just a bit surreal, to be honest. And it's fantastic. You know, so they're obviously very talented authors. And, you know, I think they deserve to be there regardless of any fandom allegiances they might have you know so i'm not just excited because they're raylos i'm also excited because they're good talented authors right um but yeah i think the fact that they're raylos is especially exciting because it does show that lucasfilm are aware of this like new talent you know and they're interested in bringing that talent in officially you know and telling official lucasfilm stories which to me is very exciting because I'm not saying it means they can like reverse things and magically make it so that Ben Solo lives. I think we're a long way off that. But I do think it means that we're getting people with more sympathetic perspectives on those like sequel trilogy characters and that part of the story moving into more official circles. And I think that's fantastic. Um, so yeah, it's very exciting to me. Yeah. I mean, Thea wrote my favourite Raylo fic ever. So this is like, it's surreal. Name it for posterity, Kirsty. Uh, it's the Sword of the Jedi series. Nice. Like Young Gods and To Kingdom Come. It's still on AO3. Oh, that's really cool. I didn't know if she'd had to take them all down because of... Um... Oh, no, because I think it's the it's the one she wrote later. Right. That was like TLJ era that's going to be published. Ah, okay. Yeah. So the ones that aren't being adapted. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. They can stay. Well, well that's good. The Raylo fandom is better for it. Um, yeah, and also a bunch of like other cool names as well. Um, like Jason Fry, who wrote the last Jedi novelizations in there. Um, Alyssa Wong, who's writing the latest High Republic novel, is in there, which I'm hopefully going to get soon um, because I'm looking forward to reading that. Um, and- Emma Candon, who wrote, um, oh, what's the name of it? Oh, Ron- Ronin. Ronin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's nice to see these like authors being encouraged and brought back in. Do you know, it was a surprise seeing um, Phil Shostak on there, who 
puts together the art books. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, I didn't realise he wrote fiction, I must say. I don't know if he wrote for one of the previous anthologies as well, but that's the first time I've really noticed his name. Yeah, I think it's cool that these kind of give people a chance to contribute in ways that they you know might not be primarily known for exactly it's like if they have an interesting idea they can pitch it and participate where it goes. exactly yeah and Kristen baver is also one of the authors and she obviously presents the star wars show on youtube yeah um and yeah that's exactly that right you know she don't necessarily think of Kristen as like an author as such but she's clearly got talent and got ideas so yeah no this is very, very speculative and we'll have no idea which specific characters or part of the story they're writing about, but their particular characters or parts of the Return of the Jedi storyline you'd be interested in seeing from a certain point of view, Kirsty. Well, obviously some Han Leia stuff. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Um, I think I'd like some more stuff that explicitly explores like Luke reflecting on vader's redemption yes that'd be really interesting like after he's left his father kind of yeah like maybe as he's like you know with the cremation and stuff yeah and of course god i've got such a bad memory for him that i thought he left his body on the bloody ship of course he takes it with him (laughs) there's a very protracted important (laughs) cremation scene (laughs) god i'm such a bad star wars fan um yeah, and I'm kind of like only half joking when I say that I'd actually really like Palpatine's perspective after he's been thrown down the shaft. <laughs> oh, you know what? We might get that in Now We Have Tross. Yeah. It's like, haha, they don't know that I have a backup plan. <laughs> I just, I want to understand. Transferring my memories to my clone. <laughs> and I hope they have little um, Palpy Junior or Ray's dad, wherever he is, around somewhere, being like, oh no. <laughs> oh god, it's all so fucking messy. <laughs> oh god, yeah, his perspective actually, Ray's father's perspective at this period in the timeline, I would eat that up. Oh my god, yeah, what's he up to during the Jedi? <laughs> Probably just rocking back and forth, being like, "This can't be my life. This can't be my life. This can't be my life." Uh, Poor dude. See, I didn't read the um the Trust Tyan novel. Yes, um, Shadow of the Sith, right? Yeah, that was written by Adam Christopher, who's one of these authors, right? Yeah, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, maybe he is writing Palpatine's son for this shit. Does Ray's dad have a discernible personality? Did you like? Did, what do you feel like you know about him after having read that book? Um, personality is a strong word. Um, oh, well, there we like, go. Okay. No, so that sounds like I'm bashing the author, kind of, and I, I don't mean it like that. It's... um. I definitely had a better sense for him. He he comes across as a very good person, like a kind dad, a loving husband, you, you know, which, again, is part of the dissonance of Tross, right? That you go from how you perceive those parents based on Last Jedi to what you get of them in Tross. It's like whiplash. Um, but it does create a really interesting backstory for him in terms of him being just perceived as like a failed experiment, essentially, in like being like locked up like an unwanted orphan in a Victorian mansion kind of you know <laughs> just like having this really like dismal upbringing until until he's in a position to escape um then he finds Ray's mother and they fall in love and then little baby Ray is born um and yeah I, I found that book quite interesting it's not perfect you know because it had one of the most difficult jobs I think in all stars canon you know to try and bring a bit more coherence and logic to the backstory of Tross, which is 
a heroic mission, you know, to even attempt that. And I don't think it was completely successful, but I did enjoy it and I found it worked quite well. So I think if you can get it through the library or something on your Kindle, you know, give it a shot one day if you're like, yeah, I don't mind reading some Star Wars again, you know. I mean, yeah, maybe, but I also just find it, it's really odd to me that we now have Ray's actual parents in canon and yet, like, there's not much to them. Yeah. Like, why should I care about these people just because they're Ray's they're parents. parents? Yeah, no, of course. You know, they should actually be really interesting. Yeah. No, they should. And I do think Ray's mother comes across as a much stronger personality than her father. Like, she's the more, like, assertive, active one, you know, in the relationship. And she's the one making the bolder decisions, I think, usually. Um, because I think suggested she grew up in a more safe and loving environment. I think she's brought up by a grandmother or something. Um, and, yeah, whereas the father kind of is a much more, like, muted, passive person, I think. And, again, it's implied that's partially based on his his upbringing. Um, but, yeah. Do you get a sense for, like, why they fell in love in the first place? Um, it is in there, but I can't... I don't want to say... It, it, oh, it's, okay. it's not such a powerful and um, like striking love story that it lingers in the mind long after oh, reading God. let's put it that way like okay. it, it, I think he's like working on the planet where she lives and they get to know each other you know it's like it's fine it's, it's relatively mundane <laughs> basically it's not a grand, grand romance but it's sweet it's nice I didn't mean to veer into trust bashing but I just cannot Ray just deserves so much better she did yes <laughs> Hopefully more happens at some point Just to make why? it a bit What's more the convincing. Point? But yeah. So right, with that said, it's time to move into the Mandalorian. Sorry, I've got a frog in my throat. Um, so yeah, really, while there's two episodes, at chapter 18, The Minds of Mandalore, and chapter 19, The Converts, I think really it's kind of going to be a discussion of two halves in that in one half we're going to talk about the storyline with Din and Bo-Katan and Grogu, of course. And then in the other storyline, we're going to talk about Dr. Pershing and um, Elia Kane, I think, is um, Katie O'Brien's character. Um, And yeah, so I feel like they just divide very neatly. You know, they're very separate at this point, so it's easy to distinguish between them. Um, But yeah, what did you feel about that first episode, Kirsty, The Minds of Mandalore and everything that goes on there? Well, I experienced them as like a double bill because I didn't watch The Minds of Mandalore until this week anyway. Okay, yeah, they would have made a really good double bill, actually, because chapter 19 is just such an instant follow-on from <laughs> chapter 18. Yeah, yeah, it fit together really well, and I was invested in the way that bo and Din's relationship was evolving. Yes. Um, I think I said after the first episode, that stuff at the end there was by far the most interesting part, and I wanted to see where that was going, so I was happy to see that that was immediately picked up. Yeah. No, exactly. And I guess I shouldn't have been too surprised by it because I think I was saying to you earlier, I have to like remind myself whenever they like set up an arc and it seems like something that's going to happen slowly over the course of a season, it's like, no, that's what they're going to be doing next episode. <laughs> it's <laughs> the pacing of the show is different from what I'm like thinking of. So I just have to kind of check that. And it's not necessarily a bad thing because it's like, yep, this is what we're doing next. Okay, they've been to Mandalore. Yeah, and in a way I was kind of relieved to be honest because I think my ultimate fear was that that was just going to be like the sum total of the season, you know, it was going to be Din's quest to be redeemed, you know, because as far as I was concerned that was, would be the most like boring story they could tell for Din, you know, I I don't want to see him just be redeemed according to the 
rules of this like cult that he happens to be in i want to see well, him begin to out- question that and that's exactly what we get that we get lots of questions and lots of realizations about oh maybe this isn't the only way that things can be done and maybe there are other ways to be mandalorian and i liked that right i think the outcome or at least i would have expected it to be quite different if that had been the overall arc like i would have expected him to change his mind through the course of that journey and decide that he didn't need to bathe at all yeah for sure um whereas this is like the other way around he goes to do it bokatan's been kind of swept into it too <laughs> and then hopefully well i guess we'll see how that evolves now like where does that go because she didn't mean to do all that stuff but you could kind of tell in the episode i was like they're not showing her face they're up to something here and um she jumps in to save him so she has been reborn too yeah completely inadvertently which i love it's hilarious (laughs) part of the cult now (laughs) (laughs) better not take that helmet off but i wonder if it like it, it does that feel to her like well, once I take it off again, that part is over. So it's not such a huge deal. I guess I'll keep it on while I'm with you guys. But then how will she start to feel about that over time? Because she's been scoffing at it, hasn't she? But is she now going to feel differently now that's happened to her? Yeah. Now, I almost wonder if what the story we're going to get is that, like, Bo, she's like this brand new convert, completely inadvertently, as we've acknowledged, um, to this like cult, you know the um, what's the specific name of the cult? Can you remember? Children of the Watch. Yeah. So she's this new convert to the Children of the Watch, and I feel like there's an established thing with cults where if you're a new convert, you're sort of like love love bombed. You know, you can feel like really sucked in and really committed really soon. And I almost wonder if she's going to be filled with this like convert seal, you know, and become like t- swept away by it all, you know, and really start to believe all this stuff especially after that encounter she had with the Mythosaur at the end of the Minds of Mandalore whereas conversely Din is going to be going the other way and he's going to be having more and more doubts and there's going to be more and more cracks in the whole thing for him up until the point where he feels like he really needs to leave it you know and he feels like it's really sinister and not a good thing for him anymore you know and I feel like if that's going to be then like a real point of tension between him and Bo you know where they're now at cross purposes again but they're like in reverse positions from what they were previously I feel that'd be really interesting that could be really interesting and I feel like that would be real fertile ground for both of them to have a lot of growth yeah exactly because then they'll have both been in the other person's shoes almost right so that's the perfect way to create empathy for the other person. And I feel like if, yeah. if that is the way they're going, then the title of chapter 19, it also has like double meaning, right? And I think it already has this meaning regardless of whether I'm right. But the convert, I just immediately took that to mean Dr. Pershing. But I think it's also Bo, isn't it? Mm, and yeah. Yeah. So it's going on. Sorry, Kirsty, mm. you were going to say something. No, I mean, it's been interesting to watch them get really close. Like, I didn't see that coming last season Same in the same way because there hasn't been such a focus on the Darksaber and who's in charge of it as I expected. It's more about them bonding and, you know, (laughs) Bo... 
kind of reluctantly, you know, when Grogu turns up and he, she's really mad at Din and then realizes he's in trouble and immediately is like, where is he? <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, she does care. Yeah. No, I thought that was really sweet. It was like she was going out and being like, right, this is the last time. Tell him to leave for good. But then she goes out and she's like, oh, no, he's in trouble. I've got to go and help. And yeah, it sort of suggests there's like, and again, it, there's nothing right now that necessarily has to lead to romance but and I feel like some people will listen to me and be like oh god this woman wants everything to lead to bloody romance and I don't there were some lingering looks yeah I don't know I just get the vibe you know I feel like they're going towards something like that and I don't know I just feel like it could really do with that sort of tension to add some like extra weight to it and some extra stakes especially if they do go in the sort of direction I just suggested you know where in a way, they're both getting closer. You know, they have this attraction and they're being pulled together by that. But they're also being pulled apart again by the fact that their views on this whole Children of the Watch thing are becoming increasingly divergent in the way you'd least expect based on how they began. Looking forward to the love scene with the helmets on. <laughs> yes! Oh my god. And I'll tell you what, Kirsty, one of the funniest scenes in the whole of the Minds of Mandalore was when Bo makes that sh- soup and it's clearly like a traditional soup, you know, that they had on Mandalore. <laughs> and he's never had it before, so immediately Bo's like, <laughs> what a loser. Um, but then he has it and he just like lifts up the helm at the tiniest notch. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, that's how they do it. So I always wondered how they ate and now we know. <laughs> I think did he eat at some point in the second season, maybe? He might or... have, but I don't remember I think... it that vividly. Okay. I know they went to like a restaurant or a bar and Grogu had some like noodles or something, but right. I can't remember if Din ate. But yeah, it is pretty funny. It was hilarious. <laughs> See, I got a lot of value from that. And yeah, I also just liked how, you know, it gave a lot of depth and history to Bo as well and I'm not sure how much this is all established in the Clone Wars but you know her talking about being a princess and oh yeah it's all there I honestly think you could have you could get into the Clone Wars via her as a character okay. and then obviously her connection with Sabine yeah I mean Satine <laughs> I was about always to get say, those right? names mixed up <laughs> yeah no no that makes sense and yeah just the whole like appearance and vibe of Mandalore as a place as well I found that really fascinating so again I know that there was clearly some big awful conflict that happened there you know and it was clearly viciously attacked and it's like this ruined twisted version of whatever it started out as but I found like the subterranean ruins of that civilization really fascinating so it reminded me of like old um, 50s and 60s adventure films like um, The Time Machine and Journey to the Centre of the Earth. Especially some like the creature designs and all these like underground caves and like all the moisture dripping down the walls and stuff. I don't know if you've seen those mm. movies, but it had those like aesthetics. Yeah, I know what you mean. I loved those um, muscly <laughs> troll aliens as well. Yes. That was so funny. Yeah, and no, it was some of the coolest like... Um, settings and creature designs I think you've had in the whole series to be honest of any of the seasons um, so yeah I really appreciate it it was very atmospheric and I just liked all the vibes and stuff yeah like the rituals and stuff I'm sure some of it's alluded mm. to in dialogue but yeah no I, I would really like to go back and watch those Clone Wars episodes there's nothing stopping me so I have Disney Plus so um, I really should <laughs> um, but yeah no it's good um, I'm trying to think is anything else? Oh, I really liked how um, warm Bo was with Grogu. 
Yeah, that was nice. Was sweet. Yeah, and like calling Din like Grogu's dad and stuff. It's yeah, just like I don't know. So I feel like she was a bit of like a warrior woman stereotype, you know, in season two. There wasn't like much going on with her for me to really glom onto, you know, or recognize like why I should care about this person. But she was just really likable and charming in this episode. And I think the actress did a really great job. Um, so yeah, kudos to her. Yeah, I think like losing her team and everything has kind of given her a, a vulnerability, right? Yeah. So it's like she's growing to care more about these main characters. So by extension, we'll see more of that and, and care about her. Exactly. And now I think about it. So obviously at the beginning of the next episode, her home is completely destroyed, right? So yeah. that in a way increases her vulnerability and tying back to my initial suggestion makes it even more likely that she's in a position to be preyed upon by this cult essentially and like really sucked into it, you know, because she's got almost nothing left. She doesn't have the dark saber. She doesn't have her home. She doesn't have her crew. She's got nothing other than this, really, at this point. Yeah, they're going to be the way that she can stay connected to Mandalore, even if she previously saw them as an entirely distinct faction. Yeah, exactly. So I I feel like I'm setting myself up for disappointment by being too precise with my predictions. But if something kind of like that happens, I'll I'll be very happy. I think, well, I I could be giving them too much credit, but I think there's got to be something to that extent because otherwise she's just going to immediately take the helmet off in the next episode and be like, yeah, I'm not doing this. (laughs) (laughs) You know, she's got to be sucked in a little bit. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, And I don't know if you've got this vibe at all, but I've also seen some suggestion on Twitter and I'm sorry, I can't remember who said it, um, but some suggestion on Twitter that the armourer sort of like has like an evil queen vibe, you know, there's something like very sinister about her. Yeah, I don't like her. Yeah, and I feel like they're going to be, ultimately, there's going to be some sort of showdown between her and Bo-Katan, like whatever form that takes. Um, And yeah, I think that'll be juicy. Okay, as long as it's not like a cat fight. (laughs) It's like, you bitch! (laughs) Vying for Din's attention. (laughs) Oh God, no, no, I I do not want that. No way, shape, or form. Oh God, yeah. I think it would be like a fight for power, kind of. Ultimately, yeah. But we will see. Just not a fight over Din, because I also don't like the vibes around the. Um, is it Paz Vizsla, the yeah, the big so. one who's voiced by John Favreau? Yes, he's got. He's. I, I know they're wearing helmets, but there's like a shiftiness to him. Yeah, I don't think he's going to accept it. No, I, I don't particularly like him either. Bad vibes. Yeah, just that whole cult, not good vibes from any of them. And I think they've done a good job at like making you really like Bo at this point. So making you want to like empathise with the point she's starting out from, rather than what she could potentially become. So I think if she does get all like caught up with by them and twisted, I don't think she's going to be quite as nice a person at the other end of it. Mm. Um, but yeah, really, really interesting stuff and much more interesting than I expected. So kudos kudos to the show to be honest because it shows i do need to give the more credit to the writers than i sometimes do i guess i should probably say writers it's mostly favorite i think we just had low expectations based on that season opener right but this you know we're also like we hope it gets better yeah you know it's not we want to like it exactly so i just find it interesting that they didn't start on such a strong focus so maybe when we have the whole season it'll be interesting to go back and think about why it's structured as it is but kind of seem to be spinning their wheels a bit there and then now it's getting into the meat of it yeah um 
Yeah. There were also some interesting, you know, design. I, I really found the design of that, like, weird droid alien eye character who captures Din. Mm. That was that was quite scary, wasn't it? It was, and just, like, quite imaginative and unique, you know? Like, I feel like it's, at this point, it's quite hard to come up with creature designs that do feel, like, original and don't instantly remind you of something else. And I feel like they did a great job of that one, you know, because I was just like, that's really creepy and uncanny. And I don't like yeah, it, it like but a... in, in a great way, you know? Yeah, like a good mix of organic and droid with like that spidery feel too. Exactly. And I know I just need to go and watch The Clone Wars, and I, I promise I will at some point. But like in The Clone Wars itself, do you see the destruction of Mandalore? Is that an event that happens in the show? Uh, I don't, yeah, I think it's just kind of referred to. I mean, I honestly, I can't remember. Okay, I know it was a while that, since you watched. The, season, the show is so long and so many like references are made to these various things. Yes. That I'm honestly not sure. Yeah, well, it's a bit labyrinthine, isn't it? So I know it like covers so many different facets of the galaxy at that point and so many different planets and civilizations. That Yeah, maybe yeah. we should look it up because I feel like Mandalore still exists at the end. But Okay. But then uh, there's also the thing about like Darth Maul taking over. Do you know about that? No. Darth Maul takes over Mandalore. He like tricks wow. Bo-Katan and her friends because they team up with him. Wow, okay. But this is the thing. Bo-Katan is a pretty interesting character because she is quite morally complex. Yes. Like there's a lot of betrayals and stuff going on and they like make a deal with the devil. I'll delete this because I wouldn't want to spoil it for anyone who doesn't know. But is that before or after he kills Satine that he takes over Mandalore? It's before. It's before. Wow, okay. God, all just all the drama. Wow. What a messy family. Wow. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's good. And it's accomplishing quite a task. So I honestly never imagined I'd be so interested in Mandalore and Mandalorians, to be honest. But this is getting me now, you know? So keep it up. Keep it up, Favreau. Um, yeah, the next episode apparently is called... Um, oh, God... It, Bloody, um, the director was splashing it everywhere, so why can't I remember? Oh, God. This is by Cole Weathers, and Cole Weathers just like cheerily tweeted oh. out what the title was. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, so the next episode is called The Foundling, and it's directed by Cole Weathers. Um, and I'm not sure who was meant to tell everyone that, you know, that is the title, and he's directing it this Wednesday. Oh, well, whatever. But it's fine, it's fine. Yeah, so presumably, I'd guess that means we're getting a very Grogu-centric episode and maybe getting more about his history and his past. So essentially, I'm keeping my expectations low in terms of getting an immediate continuation of the Mandalore stuff. So I feel it might be a bit like what we got with Chapter 19, where you get little bookends of what's going on with Dean and Bo, but in the middle, it's like a completely different story. Um, and I'm not opposed to that necessarily. It, it does feel a bit weird, but... Yeah, that's just what I'm expecting right now. Okay. Do you think there's a possibility that it refers to more than one foundling, kind of like the convert? I think it could, potentially. Yeah, yeah. Like, maybe it refers to, like, Din himself in a certain way. Um, Although, yes, he was a foundling, wasn't he? So they make a big point of paralleling that in the first season. Um, So, yeah, it could be mean Din and Grogu. Um, Or maybe it doesn't mean Grogu at all. I I feel like it probably does to some degree. Um, but yeah, we're going to find out soon, so it's on Wednesday. Um, okay, cool. Is there anything else left to say about the Mandalorian side of things, or the Minds of Mandalore specifically, Kirsty, or should we move on? I guess I was actually really enjoying Grogu in this episode yes. too, because 
No, uh, you know, last time we were saying, oh, there doesn't seem to be an awful lot of difference. But in this one, he just seemed like a bit more with it and like active. Yeah. Obviously, he had to be because he had to go and get Bo. And he was following Din's direction there. But, you know, he did it. <laughs> no, exactly. And I really enjoyed that too because I feel like way too often Grogu is just there to be like a little cute creature baby thing to be like protected and be like a little sidekick. Whereas here, he actually shows, like, initiative and agency, and he has to effectively save Din. You know, and I know he needs help to save Din. He can't completely do it himself. But he shows a lot of bravery and pluck, you know, which is nice, because it makes Grogu feel like more of an actual character rather than just, like, a cute totem, I guess. So, yeah, I appreciated that a lot. It was definitely one of the better episodes for him. Um, but yeah, thank you for raising that because I feel like this episode gave him a lot of time to shine and it would have been bad if we hadn't even mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Um, so yeah, lots of interesting stuff going on. Um, so yeah, then in chapter 19, The Convert, um, we get a little bit of Bo and Din at the, at the beginning as poor Bo's castle is completely blown to smithereens. That was um, a really great sequence, I thought. It was. It was a really fun sequence. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Very high energy. Um, but yeah, and after that, potentially Grogu's first words there. Yes. Oh my God, big baby stuff. <laughs> Sorry, it's hard. They, they both say this is the way, right? And then he sounds like he's trying to repeat it. Yeah, it's sort of like a, a kind of like garbled version, isn't it? Where you can just yeah. about pick out the words. Yeah. No, I think that qualifies. It's fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, after that part, we completely switch tack and we go to the opera house on Coruscant. So yeah, how did you feel um, when we saw that this was mostly going to be a story about Dr. Pershing and all the New Republic shenanigans on Coruscant? I thought it was great. Nice. It definitely had like an Andor vibe, which, you know, I, <laughs> I remember us saying like, oh, we want more stuff like Andor. And we didn't mean quite so much like that. Yeah. But... Like, wow, that was very literally fulfilled. No, it's always welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Favreau's obviously been watching Andor. <laughs> But I'm always happy to see Coruscant explored more too. And it was very fun to see like newcomers to the planet exploring it and like having their popsicles and walking around and talking about things. And they had the mountain that was like referenced in the High Republic novels and stuff. Exactly. And just being like tourists and stuff. It was, yeah, it was cute. quite sweet and endearing. I will say it was obvious, like literally right from her first appearance that that lady was up to no good. <laughs> Yeah, didn't for a single second think that she had been genuinely redeemed. No, she didn't seem remotely well intentioned. <laughs> I couldn't tell if that was by design, and we're meant to think that Pershing is just incredibly naive and gullible, or if that was meant to be a point of tension throughout the episode that she really was like trying to work with him and do things for the Republic. I feel like it is meant to be testament to like how naive and gullible Pershing is, right. to be honest. Okay, well, in that case, they did a great job. Yeah, no, um, he definitely comes across like that way. Because, like, obviously he's not a character we've had a great deal of time with in previous seasons. So this is definitely the most he's got in any of these seasons so far. Um, but I think I've always had the impression of him as a character who's not fundamentally, like, evil or fundamentally committed to the Empire. But he is someone who's very passionate about and believes in his research. And I think that's the idea that this episode took much further, right? You know, in terms of 
showing the extent of his commitment and how that hasn't been stamped out even after he's been removed from the Imperial machinery. Um, and yeah, it was sort of an interesting tension that, you know, there's obviously a, there's obvious parallels to what happened in real life because after World War Two, for example, the Americans, they actually recruited a bunch of like top Nazi scientists, right, to work for them, you know, and some of them, you know, helped inf- create NASA, you know, and inform the technology that was used to like send people to the moon and that sort of thing. Um, and I feel like it's a similar situation in terms of the empires identifying these people, right? You know, the people with all this like scientific knowledge, but it's not actually using that knowledge like the Americans did after World War Two. It's just trying to contain these people and make sure they don't cause any more trouble. And in a way, we're seeing how that goes wrong with the New Republic in this post Return of the Jedi world, because that desire to do this research and do science essentially it doesn't go away and you don't suppress that by having regular interviews with like robots and having them do a desk job that's just soul destroying and pointless <laughs> so yeah. yeah i also found myself getting pretty frustrated with pershing as a character because it's like sorry you don't get the luxury to be you know apolitical by choice yeah. and then just work within that evil system and claim that you're doing it just for the science yeah no it's true we all have our own responsibilities to do what's right like it's like oh i just care about the cloning it's like well maybe you should care about more yeah exactly it's like by being apolitical you're sort of taking the side by choosing to be apathetic basically and it's not a good side it's not a side you want to be on you need to take a stand against these things but i think one of the good more subtle things the show did is at the beginning when you see you know, at the opera after Persians given that speech about his work, you know, and how he's like rejected the empire, you know, and it's now on the side of the New Republic. He's sort of like just talking to people. And there's some people who are part of like the Coruscant elite and like they're talking and they kind of, one of them like kind of forgets what the regime is, you know, or what the regime change has been. And they make a comment like, oh yes, they're all the same to me. <laughs> or something. And it's like, that kind of shows how like messed up, this system is, you know, where these like super privileged people that they don't see the difference, you know, and to them, you know, it's all just like a matter of oh, what's the word I'm searching for? Is it's just different names for similar systems essentially, and mm. it's kind of depressing. So it makes it clear why it was so easy for things to fall apart, you know, and why it wasn't sustained in the long term as a new regime because nothing had fundamentally yeah. changed. <laughs> And that Palpatine was able to turn the old Republic into the Empire and no one... Well, people at that level would just not have really cared. Yeah. Because remember in Andor when they're they're talking about Palpatine at a party and they're kind of characterizing him as like just a bit of a hothead or someone with an ego that they have to tiptoe around. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than like evil incarnate. Yeah, it is quite like low level evil from the way they're talking about him, and it's almost like too human, like too relatable. <laughs> oh god. Um, and yeah, just so I feel like correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the first time that we've properly seen like the new republic system of government and how it's dealing with the empire explored after Return of the Jedi. So I know it's mm. been mentioned before, but I feel like this is the first time we're actually seeing it 
in terms of you know the whole amnesty housing thing and you know all these systems they have in place to try and de-radicalize people i guess yeah yeah i don't know how i feel about that stuff because i suppose it's inevitable when they're setting stories after that fact but like it's just so far removed from the fairy tale resolution of return of the jedi (laughs) and like everything that our original heroes did and what luke chose to do which was on this very like spiritual level of forgiving his father and trying to save him and (laughs) and then you get this yeah it's just the other end of the spectrum okay ex-imperials talking about biscuits (laughs) yeah yeah and i just yeah i want i know we have like bloodline and stuff that explores or not just yeah bloodline kind of focusing on Leia learning to navigate that system too but I don't know there's just like this weird dissonance yeah no I totally get that I feel like it's part of these like stories you know the tv and the films just being in completely different genres isn't it and it does create this sort of disconnect where I feel like you have to compartmentalize these things to make sense. This, I kind of have the saga films away in their own little box because I feel like while there are imperfections across those series of nine films, you know, they're not perfectly cohesive in all ways, they do for the most part have like a consistent tone, you know, which is like operatic and heightened, you know, and even though you're told and you recognize on a logical level that all these expansive galaxy-wide events are happening you experience all of it for a very small group of characters and it's about their personal drama more than it's about the intergalactic drama Mm. whereas i think the tv it's trying to bring it down to a much more prosaic level and telling you the stories of the boots on the ground people who otherwise wouldn't have necessarily been too important you know and definitely not important enough to have a movie made about them um and i feel like that's both a blessing and a curse because you do get lots of different stories you'd never have got on the big screen but i do think it can also sometimes leave you confused because you're kind of like do we need to know this story (laughs) well i mean a major criticism of the sequel trilogy was that there was barely anything about the wider politics of the galaxy right so maybe this is trying to fill the gaps and sort of explain how they got to the point by the time we're at the force awakens where the first order well, now we know it's the final order and Palpatine really all behind it, but like that something was so easily able to take over again because there was this like element of apathy and almost like this mundane, oh, this is just the new regime, but how much has really changed for the average person? Yeah. So. No, I do think that's part of what they're doing. Like, and it's funny really because I know the perception in Star Wars fandom is like the prequels there's lots of politics in those movies right that's the perception uh, and there is a lot more politics in the prequels than there is in either the originals or the sequels but i think ultimately the political stuff in the prequels is still largely there because it's relevant to the characters we're following you know because padme and palpatine are politicians right you know so it's very fundamental to the existences of those two characters and we still mostly see how the political decisions and their ramifications affect them as people rather than the regular people. So I feel like that's something Stoll's as a whole has never been hugely interested in. And it's just now that it's starting to really confront that in terms of like wider society and what that looks like. And 
yeah, I, I'm interested. Um, and so I think there is a lot of potential for stories there. Is not what I personally most associate Star Wars with, or the part of Star Wars that feels most like Star Wars, I guess. But I do still find it interesting. And I guess yeah, oh, I'm interested because I loved that about Andor. Yeah, you know, no, for sure. Like, I guess in a way, this sort of stuff it feels like Star Wars books brought to life. <laughs> in a way, you know, it's stuff like Bloodline on screen, you know, which there's a certain coolness to that. Yeah, I guess in a way, it almost makes me more angry for the main characters where they end up again in the Force Awakens, where Leia and Han and like Luke. Luke's in exile because of what's happened, and like that they, what well, Leia especially was left to pick up the pieces. Yeah, again, <laughs> you know. Yeah, of course, and yeah, it just makes it very wearying, and I feel like we're probably going to be even more upset for her after we find out more about what her life's been in this time period. Um, but yeah, we'll see. I'm not sure how much they'll go into her story specifically. Um, because if they do it just in the comics, that doesn't count to me. <laughs> they don't read the comics. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sure the comics are very good, but you have to draw a line somewhere, right? And for me, the comics are that line. Um, and yeah, it was interesting to see how they're maintaining the consistency of the canon for certain things, like um, the whole plot point about demilitarization and them decommissioning the Alliance fleet, for example. That's mm. right from Bloodline. That was a big plot point in there about the demilitarization policy and all the many, many problems and concerns that's causing, which obviously become very apparent by the time of the um, sequels. Um, but yeah, it was interesting to see logistics of that, you know, in terms of like just a massive shipyard. You know, that was a really cool visual. Yeah. Um... Yeah, what did you think about the glowing ice lollies, Kirsty? Oh, those kind of things were honestly some of my favourite parts. Nice. Like just these little additions and like their sense of, well, hers is fake, but <laughs> his like, you know, trepidation, but also excitement of like discovering new things and this planet that holds so many people from all walks of life and just trying to find where he fits now. Yeah, I did see someone, I feel like I'm saying this a lot, I spend too much time on Twitter but I saw someone make a really good point which is that when you see and Coruscant in Andor pretty much everyone you see walking around like in the background you know just the people full in the space they're all human whereas here mm. they're much more diverse you know there's a range of like yeah I species. love seeing the Mon Calamari yeah exactly which is nice because I've I don't think it's been explicitly explored in live action Star Wars but I know it's part of the books that the Empire was like speciesist essentially you mm. know that it was like humans first kind of so it's clear that at least the new republic's doing one thing right in terms of making coruscant more open again which is a good thing i couldn't believe that favreau could not hold himself back from doing an it's a trap line <laughs> with the mon calamari and pershing oh god i i'm so I, like i need to watch that again is that does that happen at the opera or later no, it's at the end when he's like saying to them, it's a trap, she tricked me. Oh! <laughs> I just couldn't, like... Oh God, I, I'm so dumb. Of I course he couldn't just, help himself. Because it's not in the Mon Calamari accent. <laughs> oh God. It was like the Mon Calamari almost turns to the camera. <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> like he's in the office. <laughs> That's so funny. 
oh my god I need to go back and watch that again which is embarrassing so I literally just watched it and it didn't register I think I'm tired Favreau just has no self-restraint it's hilarious yeah no, th- there's so many references. references there's like a mile a minute we didn't talk about her but Pelly was in the previous episode as well chapter 18 and yeah I, I really like Pelly she's not talking like a human being yeah not talking like a human being but I really like Pelly so I was happy to see oh her. I like her I love Amy Sedaris yeah like it's every other like... word she was saying was a reference absolutely it's too much yeah we get it it's like calm down we know you like star wars you've got nothing to prove promise you so yeah that was a bit too much yeah that said i did enjoy hearing some sequel trilogy music yeah walking around coruscant oh my god march of the resistance like that was really cute yes it was so nice and yes like people forget how good that music is you know just hearing that tune i was like this is iconic this is john williams he's doing his he's doing great work i love him man i love him before the resistance even exists yeah exactly maybe oh yeah no i just remembered the difference between diegetic and non-diegetic music never mind (laughs) (laughs) no um it's kind of like the imperial march in the background of solo exactly yeah it's like no they did not actually compose this this is not music the characters can hear but we need it because it says everything you need to know um, so yeah, that was good. Um, and yeah, what did you think about Katie O'Brien? Obviously, I know it's not the most subtle performance in the world. It was very obvious that she was up to insidious I things. Was, but I like her. Yeah, I was very happy to see her back. Yes. Like, I enjoyed her. Obviously, it's a very minor part in season two. But I, it was a really nice surprise. And I think she did a great job. Yeah, same. Like, And she's just got so much like charisma and like fun. You know, she's... I reckon she's probably going to be quite a big star in the future. She's got a movie coming out called Love Flies Bleeding with um, Kristen Stewart. And it's direct. <gasps> what? Oh, did you not know about this? No, I didn't. Oh, my Is God. It you need to look it love up. Story? It's um, going to be directed by Rose Glass, who did a horror film called St. Maud. And I have mixed feelings about St. Maud, but it's a really, really interesting and very well directed movie. So I feel like this new project's going to be something special. And I think she's going to become a big name after this. So oh, cool. Star Wars should enjoy having her while it does. Because I don't think yeah. they'll have her for much longer. <laughs> I think she's gorgeous. Yes. And so striking. Exactly. Those and... arms. Those arms out of this world. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. yeah, I was very happy to see her back. And I think they made a great pair. And I think it was a testament to her actually that you like... Even though you could see that this character is still very much evil and probably working for Gideon you you want her to be good yeah you know because and also because you care about Pershing right yes like you want things to work out even though you know they won't exactly so this is one thing where I'm not sure how to feel about it and I guess it's partly because I'm not sure how the episode wants me to feel but I feel very conflicted about Dr. Pershing because I, I can't decide if the episode is trying to highlight the fact that he's really accountable you know even though he's trying to frame it as oh i was so manipulated by the empire right it's like dude you're a grown person yeah we all have our personal ethics and you had a responsibility here yeah yeah and also because we know what it leads to with palpatine's cloning right exactly that's obviously connected yeah so i feel like it's trying to show him as like i don't feel like it's trying to absolve him as of guilt ultimately i feel like it's quite a damning portrait of him in the sense that he doesn't have like evil intent but his actions are evil by the lack of intent behind them (laughs) almost Mm. um and it shows how insidious that is 
Um, but I do yeah. think it's also showing how much the New Republic is failing by taking a very naive approach to these people, I think. you know. And doing... Yeah, you need to give him something else to do. <laughs> exactly. And doing a very poor job at this supposed rehabilitation that they're giving them. It's like, you know, the interviews that he has with the robot, for example. Like, I was like, wow, that's really not measuring up, is it? And it actually reminded me of um, Blade Runner 2049. Oh, totally. How you get the baseline tests. And yep. obviously the baseline tests in that movie are much more like aggressive and scary. <laughs> Um, than what we get here where it's all very polite and very pleasant and very nice um, but it's also but he had that like disillusionment and frustration that Kay has there exactly yeah and it's just the completely impersonal nature of it right you know and how he really does just come to realise that to the New Republic he's just a cog in the machine and he's just a functionary and he's not actually serving a useful purpose you know when we see him at the desk job he realises that the work he's doing is essentially pointless because all the records are going to be destroyed anyway. So he's archiving things that no one will need or no one will use. Um, and to an extent, I do empathise the disillusionment that he feels over that. And I think that's meant to be the indict the um, that's meant to be where you recognise how deeply flawed the New Republic is from its very earliest stages. Yeah, because then it leaves a gap for him to be preyed on, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. It makes him really vulnerable to someone like... Um, I was about to say Katie O'Brien, but that's definitely not a Star Wars <laughs> name. It leaves him vulnerable to Kane and her predations. Um, but yeah, I'm very curious about what's going to happen next. I presume she's going to take that suitcase to um, Gideon, wherever the hell Gideon is. Okay, um, so I, I mentioned this to you before the show, and maybe I'm just being stupid, but I was really like, why can't they see that she's taking the case... And that she set him up. Like, why are they acting like, oh, you did such a good job catching him out. You're such, you're one of the good ones. It's like, um, it could not be more obvious that she took him there intentionally and then took the gear. Like, what happened to that gear? Yeah, um, this is an excellent point. Um, I'd say this is one of the points at which you can see the difference between this show and something like Andor. In... I mean, maybe it gets explained in a later episode. Yeah, but... I, I feel like we're going to get more context to what's been happening with um, that character, you know, later on. Because there are a few lines that seem very loaded, you know, that make me suggest... That suggest to me we're going to get more backstory for her as well, or at least more information about her. Because I think he asks her a question, something like, oh, like, where did you what did you want to do when you were a kid or something? And she says something like, oh, I never had a chance to think about that, you know? Mm. And that line felt quite loaded to me in the sense that, oh, that's foreshadowing something. Might be wrong, but we'll find out. Um, yeah, I guess it's a contrast with Pershing himself, who was obviously allowed to cultivate such a passion yeah. and really pursue it to the highest level. Exactly, and who clearly had a very loving, close relationship with his mother, which I appreciated because... You know, it's nice to see a relationship between a boy and his mum rather than, you know, boy and his dad, which is the usual thing. Um, and yeah, it seemed like she was very supportive and encouraging. And obviously she had this illness that encouraged him to pursue this type of research. So no one would have to suffer like that again, which is very sympathetic. You know, you understand where he's coming from, even though you hopefully don't understand what he ends up doing with that <laughs> passion. Um, but interesting to see him deliver that speech in the same setting where Anakin and Palpatine are talking about the need to pursue 
immortal life. Yes. Save the ones you love, you know. Exactly. And I feel like it feeds quite nicely into the idea of that quest being integral to the whole of Star Wars, doesn't it? Because it's Palpatine's obsession. And I guess that's sort of a tease that this show will tie into that grander design in that way, you know, in terms of us understanding how Palpatine sought the technical means to make that dream a reality through this cloning technology, even though it ultimately didn't work. Because, um, mm. yeah, Snoke was messed up. Probably <laughs> messed up. <laughs> uh, well, Snoke was, but apparently Palpatine popped out endless clones of himself. It's <laughs> so funny. I still can't get over clones in Star Wars. I know it's going to be know, a big thing. I know, I know it's a huge part of it. Yeah. But... It just doesn't feel right somehow. I don't know. It's just one of those sci-fi concepts. That I feel like it's in my head. It's shunted off in a little box. Yeah. I do think it's interesting how, in recent years, it's become like a forefront concept in Star Wars. Like you know, you have the Bad Batch. Yes. About the clones. Obviously, they were there in the Clone Wars, but like the main characters mostly were like the Jedi, and you know, it's just. I don't know. I didn't expect to be thinking about clones so much. Yeah. Although I did just remember that episode two is called Attack of the Clones. So never mind. Yes, but it's not really about them. Yeah, they're this there is in the true. background. They're like a it's plot device, the aren't is... they? Yeah. 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 I don't know. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'll have to get used to it because it's clearly going to be a big part of this season of Mando. Um, but yeah, suffice to say, I'm very curious to see what happens with Elia Kane and that suitcase. And I'm also very curious to see what happens to Pershing after having that bloody torture device applied. Oh, God. Yeah, it's like, it's not super clear. It's like how, what, was she turning it up to the point where he's like no longer going to be able to be a functioning human being? Yeah. So I think like... Is she killing him? Or is it more like he's just losing all memory of everything so that she's safe? Yeah, so I feel like what I don't understand is that I would have thought that he himself would have been critical to whatever Palpatine and Gideon want to do. That's what I was confused by, yeah. yeah. I was like, I thought you needed him. Yeah, exactly. Like, I thought she was trapping him. Yeah, it's like, what know? good is the technology if you don't know how to use the technology, you know? And that's obviously what you need Dr. Pershing for. Uh, maybe they have some other scientists on standby waiting to use that technology, who knows? Um, but if so that feels a bit clumsy to me um yeah and the fact that he was so susceptible like you probably could have brought him around to working for you again <laughs> exactly he worked for you happily the first time yeah you just need to come up with some bullshit thing like um what sort of excuse could they give him be like well we're going to donate proceeds from all these cloning operations <laughs> to the imperial society for the protection of babies or something and like, oh that's fine then that sort of like offsets all the evil it's like, no. Yeah, no, I guess that's where I thought they were going when she takes him to the ship. I thought they were actually going to kidnap him yeah. and make him work for them. Because um, as it stands, it's, yeah, it makes you wonder, like, what state is he going to be in at this point? And will he continue to play a part? Like, will he be able to bring them down in some way? Or is it, that just, that's gone from his memory now? Yeah. No, so many questions. Hopefully we'll have answers. I don't expect answers to all of them. But hopefully some of the more pressing ones. Because, um, yeah. But I thought it was very entertaining as an episode in itself. You know, even though I thought some of it was like, wait, what? Like, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, you know, it, it raised questions, but 
suppose it's meant to yeah exactly and i'd say that if we're going to have like complete tangents and following characters other than din for like most of an episode i'd much rather it be like this rather than creepy uncanny valley luke skywalker so yeah more of this please less uncanny yeah because they were great performances yeah no exactly nice to see real humans interact on screen um so yeah i feel like that's everything i wanted to say do you have any final thoughts kirsty um not really because um as you say this was such like a i know din and Bo and grogu were in the episode mm-hmm. but it was very much like bookends yes for sure and um yeah i don't know if pershing will be showing up again in this season but i i think we can probably expect kane to reunite with gideon right yeah i'd imagine so we're gonna see where that suitcase ends up right so yeah hmm Oh boy. So is Gideon going to be the main villain again? <laughs> I feel like he is. And very I'm not handy. mad about it because I really like the actor. <laughs> so. And I'm like, is he still going to be after Grogu? Or is he going to be aiming higher? Or what? Yeah. Like, And I'm just curious about how openly they're going to tie all this stuff into the path to the sequels. You know, Because right, right now they're being quite coy about it like haha nudge nudge yes this is about cloning but we're not really going to fully go there it's like well we know what you're doing yeah I, I feel like they're getting closer and closer to just being open about it to be honest because i feel like when they're literally beginning the episode of a scene set at the opera house on coruscant it's <laughs> yeah it's not subtle you know the whole palpatine thing is going to come into it and do you think ian mcdermott could show yes up? yes <laughs> limited power yeah, would not be mad. I love Ian. So, yeah, I would love to see him in The Mandalorian. Let him ham it up more than ever. I think he'll be delightful. I guess I'm just um, interested to see how... I know there's the Grogu connection, but, like, other than that, is it just going to kind of stay segmented from the Mandalorian storyline? Because now they're not going to have that spin-off about the New Republic, right? Mm. So it's like, is this stuff going to just be kind of shoved into one show? Which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing, to be honest. I don't really want to watch a ton of different spin-offs to understand the story. For sure, yeah. But I guess I'm interested to see what that will do to the structure. Yeah, I, I do feel like they this might happen more than once in a season. Let's put it that way. But well, we know like they're not shy of doing that because look at Book of Boba Fett, right? Um, so yeah, but I think it was more successful here. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like it's probably going to happen again as a result of ideas being divided up and reallocated elsewhere. Let's put it that way. So I did read an interview with Kathleen Kennedy where she specifically mentioned that storylines from Rangers of the New Republic were going to be reused in The Mandalorian. So they've yeah. been open about that essentially. And I can't prove it, but I'm almost certain that that was the case with this. And again, I don't object to that at all. I feel it was relatively well integrated and added to the story. Um, but yeah, I think that's what happened. I guess I'll just be interested to see if they attempt to tie that up with like oh, this is why Din cares about that stuff, or he gets involved at all, or if it's just completely distinct. Because yeah. you don't have Cara Dune in, in the middle anymore. <laughs> no, tying them up. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I'm yeah, not no, no, of course, of course. But... I, I know exactly what you mean. Um, but yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I, I feel like there's quite a lot to do now, you know, with the whole, like, Mandalore subplot, you know, and what's going to go on with Din and Bo. 
And right now they do feel so completely separate that it's hard for me to imagine how they're going to come together. I'd, I'd expect they will by the end for it to sort of justify its placement in this series, right? But I might be wrong. Who knows? Hmm. Yeah, I guess I just I'm curious to see whether it would feel repetitive in the way that it's like, oh, they're trying to capture Grogu again, or if it's something different. I feel it would have to be something different. I I think maybe yeah. it would be something bigger, you know, like First Order. Fine, what am I saying? First Order. But the Mandalorians are getting more involved with the New Republic politics, something like yeah, that. Yeah, potentially. Yeah, or like you know, whispers about like imperial remnants and stuff, like presenting a military threat, maybe, and there needing to be a pushback against that. That could potentially be the sort of storyline they do. Deceivable, hmm. see. Um, so yeah, I'll end it there because my voice is starting to go a little bit, and no one wants to hear me croaking. Um, so yeah, thank you, Kirsty. That was a good discussion. Enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, same. Yeah. So I'm Rachel, and you can find me on Twitter at Rachel1918 and on Tumblr at Star Wars Nonsense. I'm Kirsty, and you can find both of us on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time, bye! Bye!